Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This week, Dr. Bill Anthelis joins Reaganism guest host, Dr. Janet Tran, for a conversation. Bill is the director and CEO of the Miller Center, a nonpartisan affiliate of the University of Virginia that specializes in presidential scholarship, public policy, and political history. He also previously served as the managing director of the Brookings Institution, Washington, D.C.-based think tank, and served in a variety of senior government positions during the Clinton years. Bell and Janet discussed the history of the American presidency and how the country has dealt with hyperpartisanship in the past. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Well, hello and welcome to Reaganism. I am your guest host, Janet Tran, Director of the Center for Civics, Education and Opportunity at the Ronald Reagan Institute. And today I feel incredibly fortunate to delve into the mind of Dr. Bill Antholis, Director and CEO of the Miller Center for Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Janet. Really uh, honored that you asked me. So Bill, Whenever I speak about our presidential, um, other presidential foundations and libraries, I like to think of them as our presidential cousins, if you will, like our, you know, 30, our cousins from 35, if we're speaking to our friends at JFK. And um, I feel like the Miller Center, through virtue of your work and your scholarship, is a relative of ours of sorts as well. And um, I think most of the audience might know the Miller Center for its presidential oral histories, but your organization has actually evolved into so much more. And I'd love for you to give, for our listeners who don't know, maybe an overview of the history and legacy of the Miller Center. Sure. Well, we were founded in the um, early 1970s. And it took a while for the donor, uh, Burkett Miller, to figure out exactly what he wanted. At first, he thought maybe he wanted something like the Kennedy School or the Woodrow, what was then the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. Um, to be based at UVA where he had gone to law school. I think he decided toward the end of the 60s in conversation both with the president and, uh, and rector of the university, as well as with the governor, Linwood Holton, a Republican governor um, who's still alive at 95 years old. He had decided with the three of them that actually he wanted something that looked a little bit more like a think tank that did research, but that it was applied research. And so the, the founding mission of the Miller Center, we've sort of come back full circle to it. The founding mission um, only states the presidency in part. It was to identify big problems in the country and use the best academic resources of the university and students to address them, but to steer the findings of that research towards policymakers and the public, to be very public facing. By the time the Miller Center opened its doors, it was 19, and I should say one other thing, um, Burkett Miller was from Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was a Southern conservative Democrat. And I don't think he could understand how another Southern conservative Democrat, Lyndon Johnson, had gotten into the war in Vietnam. Uh, and so 
and then by 1974, the Miller Center's doors opened 74, 75, and then Nixon is brought down by Watergate. So very quickly, we got into studying the presidency. And shortly after the founding of the place in 1977, after Gerald Ford had lost to Jimmy Carter, um, the then director of the Miller Center brought down the whole Ford White House for a two-day oral history conference on the Ford White House. So outside my office, which you've probably seen, Jim, there's a picture of a young Dick Cheney, a young Don Rumsfeld. Brent Spocroft never looked young. Uh, in 1974, right, this is now 47 years ago. I'm sorry, 1977, uh, uh, 44 years ago, uh, the picture of these people who had run the Ford administration talking about the Ford administration. Well, all three of those folks participated not just in the Ford oral history, but in uh, the Bush 41 oral history. And um, some participated in the Reagan oral history and uh, Dick Cheney, um, and some participated in the, um, uh, the Bush 43 oral history as well. And so we got into the business of doing these oral histories very early. And that was a good thing because one of the things about think tanks is you have to be distinctive. And very early on in the Miller Center's history, one of the things that made us distinctive was studying the office of the president, um, how presidents themselves functions and function, and then executive branch actions. I think um, you know what you mentioned about the recurring cast of characters that you see um, as sort of these power brokers and these um, historical levers is really critical because certainly uh, we look at the president and the the man or eventually the woman who will hold office, but it's the presidency that oftentimes we're studying because it is uh, far more than one person, and um, you know we are we are all multiples. So I'm gonna characterize you as um, very future and forward facing in terms of what you aspire for. I, I hope that's fair when it comes to the Miller Center, but you also just have this incredible deep regard for the lessons of history and um, what history can, how history can guide us. So I wanna also look at the power of place. You are located in a remarkable location of Charlottesville, Virginia, You know, the home of um, a variety of our founders, and the Miller Center lives there with a place that is loaded with incredible, yet also deeply troubling history. And obviously in recent years, you know, past and present have collided. And I'd love to understand um, where you see the Miller Center's role in reckoning with this challenging history. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a great question. Yeah, we, um, we, we are really blessed to be in a geographically beautiful place and a historically rich, culturally rich, place. Um, and Thomas Jefferson remains um, the most influential person that's lived in Charlottesville with, with two neighbors, um, Madison and Monroe, who succeeded him as president. You know, no slashes. People don't realize that Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, three two-term presidents, each twice elected, um, from the same political party. That's never happened in American history. It's actually the last time a two-term president who was elected to both terms was succeeded by another two-term president elected to two terms was when Madison handed it over to Monroe. Um, 
it, it just hadn't happened again. You know, the closest no, no. was FDR's many, many terms. But Truman succeeded him. The most recent is Truman succeeded him, served out almost a full four years, and then was once elected to a second term. And the reason that I spent some time on that is this region and those three presidents really had an important imprint on American history for good and for bad. The good, obviously, is they were the Democratic Republican Party. And in that early year of American history, there was a real concern about whether we would revert to a monarchy because nobody had really ever done this before. The peaceful transfer of power from one political party to another happened for the first time in 1801 when Adams passed it over to Jefferson. That had never happened in political history. We'd never had in, in the British system, there, were, there was the emergence of a new party, but it had never transferred. And it transferred in France after the French Revolution, but it wasn't peaceful. Um, and if you go back to ancient Greek and ancient Roman history, they didn't really have the equivalent of political parties that we have today. So that was an important innovation that, you know, was made here in America. And yet the legacy of those three presidents is they were all slaveholders. And what I think that did, and, and I will say somewhat in their defense, they were all slaveholders that felt that slavery had to go away. They knew the moral um, sin that was, um, that started at the beginning of the American system and they were sinners and they knew that. Um, Jefferson said that his hand trembled when he thought about what would happen on Judgment Day. But as Bill Clinton said at a recent event here at the Miller Center, it didn't tre tremble enough that, um, that he would sign an Emancipation Proclamation of any kind. Um, he did write it in the Declaration of Independence, and it was deleted from the Declaration of Independence that they would aspire to that. Um, so anyhow, that is the legacy that lives through to today. And we saw it here with the um, people, the white supremacists who rallied in this city in 2017 because there was a city ordinance to bring down the Robert E. Lee statue. Um, and the tragedies that happened on that day, including the killing of one person and the death of two police officers who died. Um, uh, and, and we're still sorting through that. We sort through it at the Miller Center and we sort through it at the University of Virginia and we should sort through it. And I think we'll all be dealing with the legacies of race in this country for many years to come. I think what you, um, what you bring up is this premise of trying to sort or maybe litigate uh, the past through the, the lens of our current context. And it's challenging because it is, um, we're not on the same level playing field or thinking and not to excuse the past, but really to ultimately say, and that uh, there was an incredible momentous moment in, in the history of civilization, as well as some, some deep atrocities that are, are part of that cost. So the and is, is really critical as we try to um, think about our current times. And so many individuals um, living through this current moment have said, is this the most divisive and um, polarized or tumultuous time that's ever existed. And certainly with the, um, the arsenal of history, we can, we can reflect and say, we have some lessons to, um, to be learned, though not an exact template or, or directions to follow because that's our, our path to, to chart. Um, I'm curious in terms of, you know, what your goals and visions for the Miller Center are in this particular tur turbulent time 
when it comes to the study of the presidency? Well, it's uh, it's a question that they asked me now uh, six and a half years ago, almost seven years ago, when uh, when I was recruited and applied to to take this job on, and and I look back on that, and they've stayed pretty consistent for me for seven years. One is to really focus um, and be intentional about our study of the presidency and our role in studying the presidency, including in particular in partnership with great um, presidential libraries like the Reagan Library and presidential institutes like the Reagan Institute. We see ourselves as part of an ecosystem, as part of a family. Um, uh, I, I don't know exactly which family member we are, um, but uh, I, I like to think that maybe we're the ant that is the, uh, the yenta that is always bringing people together and matchmaking in unusual ways because we see across all the family and think of everyone as our um, friends and collaborators. So the presidency is important to us in studying it in a nonpartisan, bipartisan way, which is, uh, which is increasingly difficult, but we are committed to that. Number two is um, democracy, understanding the presidency as an important signature institution in our democracy but that touches on a range of issues in democracy, institutional issues, policy issues, and issues of American identity and of um, how the president relates to the public at large. And when we do that at a big complicated university like UVA, for, for me, that means leaning into UVA and not running away from UVA. So we're really working closely with the rest of the university on, on building uh, an institute of democracy that cuts across the schools of the university in these different dimensions, institutional policy and, and uh, cultural societal dimensions of democracy. And the third is um, the importance of, civil, of, of maintaining and modeling civil discourse. We have done about 60 webinars in the last year. We don't do in-person events because of the pandemic, but we've been doing a lot of webinars. We've done 60 in the last year. And we really tried to anchor as much of them as we can in the presidency broadly understood to include the executive branch, but also to focus on big issues of democracy um, uh, and to keep them both uh, diverse and civil. Um, and by diversity, we certainly mean uh, the things that I think people most associate with diversity and equity inclusion, particularly in a year where the racial justice reckoning has really come forward but also to include the full range of conservative voices um, to the extent that they're responsible. And I think we saw in the insurrection that we have to draw a line from time to time about what counts as responsible in the, in the conservative movement, but we've tried to be very proactive in that space as well. And defined by, um, by civility and respect. Um, and we think that that's essential. So that, that's our vision and it, it it's where I was, I think, six and a half years ago. I think I focused on those three things um, then, and we are still focusing on them now. Yeah, I think that's really critical that our values stay the same, even as our, our priorities may shift. And um, certainly, uh, if you're the Yenta, we, we, we love being matchmaked um, with you because it's, um, it is finding those, those common threads in our, our presidential history. Um, I'll jump in and speak a little bit about uh, the presidents and the people who held office. 
I'd love to think about um, the office itself. Um, so looking back at the past, uh, presidents generally um, have you know, joined an elite club they refer to, and the sitting president usually looks towards the former presidents um, generally for advice. Um, and I'll quote uh, President George H.W. Bush, who said, for my presidency and for others, the Miller Center is a place that gets history and preserves it for future generations. But there's a sort of troubling um, feeling and sentiment amongst Americans right now that institutions don't no longer work for them. And there is a desire by some to say, you know, this, the institution itself is not working and we'd like to see something entirely new. So I'd love for um, you to share maybe some insights that you found in your time in running these 60 webinars and uh, what is your response to sort of this, this sentiment and you know, how can the office change to meet the needs of the times as well as preserve what, what worked about the office of the presidency and the executive uh, branch writ large. Mm -hmm. Look, I think that that lack of trust in government is one of the great five crises facing the country. You know, President Biden, in his um, acceptance speech for the Democratic nomination, pointed to four crises, the pandemic, the economic crisis, the racial justice reckoning, and the climate crisis. But I think cutting across all four of those is the fifth crisis, which is the crisis in our democracy. Um, uh, let me just say, as somebody that really believes in public service, um, the glass is more than half full. Uh, over 60% of the country um, accepted that President Biden was duly elected. And in the current moment, over 50% um, uh, affirm President Biden's role and think that he's doing a job, including over 60% who think he's doing a great job on the pandemic which I think all of us, or maybe not all of us, but most of us would agree is, is the great crisis facing the country right now. So one way that I start, Janet, in, in answering your question is to say, let's look at the crises in front of us and see are our institutions working, including in particular the presidency. And, and here, I'm gonna focus a little bit on the good news, which is it is working. But I think the fact that many people don't trust government, um, you know, 77 in the weeks after the election, 77% of Republicans, which translate to about 37% of the country, didn't believe that President Biden was duly elected. And that happens to correspond with the number of people that don't trust government. It happens to correspond with the number of people that supported President Trump pretty consistently across his four years in office. And, um, those are legitimate concerns, right? We have to, we can't dismiss 37% of the country. I wrote during the transition period that we have a new secession crisis where 37% of the country is seceding from a reality that 63% of the country embrace. And, and I take President Biden on his word that he has to represent all Americans much in the same way that President Lincoln during the last secession crisis wanted to unify the country when the Southern states were seceding. So I try to look ahead as you were saying before at the big challenges facing the country. And I think for President Biden, what he needs to lean into are what's worked in the past. He has to good, put good people in office. Uh, and this came out of our first year project where we took the lessons of previous presidents and tried to apply them to the future. When they work, they hire good people. 
those good people learn to work with one another in processes where they vet ideas before bringing them public and then they work together. They manage the politics of working through Congress. President Reagan was terrific at that and working with Tip O'Neill on things that he wanted to get done. Um, they, they in particular focus on a few set of priorities that they promise to run on, but they do so in an inclusive way. And they pay attention to the American people when they're unhappy about the things they're doing. They pay attention to their popularity because that's, that's a litmus test of what's working with the American people and what's not working. Well, I, I thank you for reflecting on the office and um, providing some hope. There's obviously a lot of scholarship that is um, presenting the job also is just very large and, and impossible to manage in, in one day. But obviously they have this, this team, this cabinet, um, their officials to hopefully support them. And they're, you know, the, the real question is whether or not we, we do a large sweeping change versus um, more incremental changes. I do want to take us back, though, because you, you spoke a little bit about um, the crisis on January 6th. And I want to take us back to uh, the summer of 2019, when we at the Reagan Institute we were privileged to partner with the Miller Center and uh, our leadership and the American Presidency Program hosted a capstone presidential symposium. Um, it was our second at the time at uh, the, with the Miller Center. And we bring together scholars uh, for our students, our university level students, to to really understand the framework. And that year, I believe the theme was um, based on uh, the deep bridging um, of polarization that had, you know, had snuck up on our country, had been in fomenting for quite some time. And uh, we had a, a great, um, great time speaking over some polling data that we ran with our students. And, and you, um, you said you were gonna give some brief remarks and, and have to step out, but you ended up staying for quite some time. Um, you know, participating in this polling with our students. And during that, um, that conversation, we were asking questions of whether or not we thought the Civil War um, was inevitable, whether a house divided against itself um, you know, could stand. And then um, one of the, the more chilling questions was whether or not a civil war was likely in our lifetime. And again, this is summer of 2019. And uh, you were in the minority uh, in that polling data and you were willing to share your mindset. So I'd love to sort of, for our audience, um, speak about how that thinking has evolved, what the Miller Center has done in the time um, between the summer of 2019 to uh, this current moment right now, and what we still need to do to ensure that we, uh, we prevent political violence and that we, we again, rebuild uh, and restore trust and processes and find lawful ways to, to express and, um, you know, be engaged citizens without um, without fomenting rebellion, if you will. <laughs> well, Janet, first, uh, I want to thank you and the team for coming down. Most summers when we can do these in person, I think we did it last year by Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope we get to return again to doing those in person because they're so terrific. Mostly, uh, in addition to getting to see you and your team, the students are just wonderful. They're, they're um, in addition to being smart, they're diverse from across the country, from different kinds of universities, different kinds of projects, different kinds of personal backgrounds. I just, it's one of my favorite events every summer. Um, and the question, and I had not given it a huge amount of thought beforehand, but the questions that you posed in that particular question, would we see a civil war in our lifetime? 
really resonated with me. If I remember correctly, it was late July of the summer of 19. So now it's two years after the white supremacist march here in Charlottesville, where I saw pretty heavily armed militias walking through our town um, on both sides, including Antifa. There weren't as many Antifa as there were the various white right-wing militias, but I saw them literally two blocks from my house. I lived two blocks from the Robert E. Lee statue. I walked my kids across that to go to the farmer's market, and I had at the time in 2017, a 15-year-old daughter who was scooping ice cream on the downtown mall when Heather Heyer was killed less than a block away from her and I was there. So I saw all of this. And that question, could we have a civil war in our lifetime really resonated with me. And then I'd lived through the experience in 2000, which many of us had of the, the Bush v. Gore close count. And I thought about Lincoln and I had given some thought to Lincoln and what he went through in his inaugural. As part of our first year project, we had essays written on Lincoln's first year and on um, Thomas Jefferson's first year. And we produced a short video on the, the first, the worst two first years ever, uh, the, the two hardest transitions. And what I, I started riffing out loud I think this is why you're asking me to talk about as I started riffing out loud, what if there was a contested election where it was unclear the day after the election and it was so divided and um, one side refused to accept the results? Would we see, um, would we see the violence in the streets that we saw here in Charlottesville? And I think I said at the time, I don't think we're gonna have true secession of states seceding. But I think we could see civil unrest in this country and armed civil unrest in this country. And um, that was worrisome to me. And frankly, remains worrisome to me. Right after that, we at the center then began, thanks to that event, I started talking to people, including our now deceased board member, Jim Lehrer. And he himself was very worried at the time about exactly what happened, um, that President Trump might lose the election and refuse to acknowledge the, the true findings of the election and refuse to leave office. It ended up playing out differently, I think, than we thought, partly because the institutions at some level did work. The military did not follow a president who didn't want to leave office. Many Republicans, um, refused to follow the orders, including Vice President Pence of the sitting president to overturn the results on election day. Um, and, and thank God that they, um, that they didn't follow those orders because it could have been much worse than it was. Spoke a little bit as well about how the lines would be drawn, that they would maybe not be necessarily geographic. And of course I'm digging back into my uh, my, my unreliable brain, but really thinking about um, the circumstances in which we, we could divide ourselves in this sort of current context. And um, it, it is also interesting to see the role now that corporations and business and individual you know, um, entities are playing in, in governing um, this sort of behavior and, and uh, the, those who refuse to certify the election and what their response is, because in some ways that is a break off. It was not a sedition by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a, 
a break from the way the game was played. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think there are three things that I'm, I follow what CEOs say and do because they're a private sector analogy to the president and the presidency. And I guess technically I'm a, I am a CEO as part of my title. I run a, an organization with about 40 full-time employees and we have another affiliated 20 or 30 faculty members who are some of the best faculty at UVA and non-resident faculty members. We're a really terrific and complicated organization. So I'm seeing three colliding things. One is the narrow debates about the election, which I think would have gone much differently if President Trump had listened to the White House staff and advisors who advised him that the election was close, but not as close as, say, Bush, Bush v. Gore, or even very close previous elections like um, the Kennedy-Nixon election was actually technically closer than this one was in many regards. Um, the, the election, this election was about as close as when President Trump beat Hillary Clinton in what he deemed a landslide. And yet President Trump, Trump chose to listen to advisors. So there was a controversy around that and about the violence that happened and how responsible the president was and it led to his impeachment. That was issue number one. But there are two other issues that I think CEOs are also wrestling with. One is diversity, equity, and inclusion, which has come up as a result of many of uh, the issues connected to January 6th, including the voting rights issues connected to it. Um, as we're seeing in the state of Georgia that's passed new voting rights regulations, um, we're now starting to see CEOs having to navigate their way around that. But then also, how do we as organizations that are trying to promote civil discourse bring forward conservative ideas who might feel because there was an armed insurrection by far right wing groups that somehow their ideas are not legitimate. And I believe deeply, uh, I personally believe deeply in some very important conservative ideas, but the conservative voices have an important role to play in our democracy. How do we bring these forward and help um, support responsible conservative voices on things like um, equality of opportunity, um, economic freedom, uh, and, uh, and the freedom to speak freely, uh, as long as you're not fomenting violence on a range of issues and not have those ideas canceled in some sense. And so it's, it's a tough challenge for a CEO, whether you're a multinational company or a small research organization in a complex university. Well, especially for a CEO like you, where this is the business of your work is promoting civil discourse. So to see the decline and the inability to dissent and engage in better arguments, which ultimately should be the bedrock of our education so that we can surface the best ideas. But if we don't know how to argue, we are ultimately in a scenario where we have these silos and, you know, I think that um, one of the pieces of your work is, you know, those 60 webinars you spoke about, but um, in, in different times, you also hosted some pretty major events. Um, I believe PresFest, which is now um, evolving into the Democracy Biennial. I'd love for you to share a little bit about how that idea um, started from, you know, from dream to ideation to actual implementation and uh, share what your hopes are in terms of facilitating this sort of dialogue that is balanced and brings together um, a very diverse range of, of thought. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, 
Um, I'll tell you how it started. You'll you'll probably appreciate this, Janet, because I'm sure you did you did a job talk in order to get hired for your job. Um, one of the things they asked me when I was applying to be director of the Miller Center is, "What's your three-year plan? What's your five-year plan? What's your ten-year plan?" And my three-year plan, this was the fall of 2014, was thinking ahead to 2017, and just thinking in the calendar of the if we're going to focus on the presidency, democracy, and civil discourse. 2017 was going to be the first year of whoever the next president was. We didn't know who that was going to be. And so we came up with the first year project as a way of programming in that space, because from 2014, 2017 would have been the first year. Five years ahead of 2014 was 2019. And I went to UVA and I knew that 2019 was UVA's bicentennial. Um, we were founded in 1819. And it's on the student, you know, on the on the graduation ring that every student has. The seal of UVA has 1819 on it. And so I said, what what would the Miller Center's role be in the bicentennial? We should host a major conference on the presidency, and we should try to get some presidents to come to it. Um, that was the basic idea. I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't know who would be involved. I didn't know how we were going to get the presidents. Um, but we started talking with the faculty and staff, and we, we came on the idea of doing a three-day event that had a series of panels on the range of issues that we study, institutional policy and presidency in the public, social issues and the like. And we just kept thinking, how would we fill the days? Who would speak on what panels? We wanted to make them diverse. We wanted to make them inclusive, including having a range of conservative voices. And we wanted to make it um, forward-looking and positive, and that's what we did. And at the time, we started interviewing President Bill Clinton for his oral history project, and we essentially started dropping the hint that we would like him to come. And he, you remember, he's William Jefferson Clinton. Um, and I remembered that, and I kept teasing him about it. And he knew a lot about Jefferson. He really has studied Jefferson. Good Jefferson. Um, he said to me, as he was walking us out, um, and I was starting to lobby him to come speak, he said, Jefferson didn't want to be remembered for being a president. On his tombstone, he wanted to re be remembered for three things. You know, because you've been up there with the yes. students you've seen him on the shelf. One, being the author of the Declaration, Declaration of Independence. Two, being the author of the Virginia Statue of Religious yes. Liberty. And three, being the father of the University of Virginia. And Clinton knew that. And what, what he was saying was Clinton wanted, Clinton knew that Jefferson wanted to be remembered for his ideas and his legacy as um, on someone connected to ideas. And for us, that was, um, uh, it was the final event that we did at Presidents was his speech. It was really moving. He went back and talked about, um, I think he named, did a name check on 16 presidents in his 90 minute speech. Uh, you were there. You saw it. It had the whole crowd captured for ninety minutes. Um, yeah, with, without a single note on paper. Yeah, it was. It was really something. Um, so that was Prince Fest. That's that's what we were thinking about, but it it went beyond our our wildest dreams about what it would um, what would it end up being. Well, I think this conversation, this business of legacy is presidential studies in some way. And it's so fascinating um, being at organizations that 
that see how uh, presidents are, you know, their their history is interrogated, and um, you know who who is the deciding factor because it is often not the president themselves. Um, it's built by their predecessors. It's built by first ladies strongly. Um, it's built by the loyalists who carry the flame and those who you know the uh, those who oppose the flame. It's it's built carefully um, and revealed by layers of history, whether as documents come out, as primary sources are, are uncovered in national security, and you know things that we didn't know in real time that we start learning about their presidential decision making. So you know we spoke about the fact that presidential legacy is is oftentimes more of a mirror of the present um, than it is about the past. Um, so you have this wealth of knowledge at the Miller Center, and you certainly are in the business of being this genta and thinking about sort of these um, parallel or, or complementary streams of, of work and uh, thought. And I'd love to just hear about, you know, how you address and think of changing perceptions of presidents over time. Mm -hmm. I, th I think about it a lot. Look, the, um, there are two, two quotes that come to mind, um, and neither is about the presidency, but they both apply. One is, um, uh, I, I think it was a delegation of Americans went to China after the opening during the Nixon presidency. And someone is reported to have asked Zhao Enlai, one of the Chinese communist leaders, um, whether he thought the French, the French Revolution was a success because they had just gone through a communist revolution. And Zhao Enlai said almost 200 years after the French Revolution, it's too soon to say. Um, we, we don't really know, uh, and every generation looks at it differently. William Faulkner, I think, famously said something, the past is not even the past. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, uh, we're, we're still living in it, I think, was the, the essence of the legacies that carry forward. And as we talked about before, we're still living with the legacy of slavery, and it continues to change um, and transform our own thinkings about political identity, not just individual identities and race, but even how we think about what founders did, what presidents have done. Um, I, I'll put it this way, though. I think that that's one of the most important things about politics is it's connected to our values. And our values are a combination of the things we inherit and what we see as the current challenges that are facing us. George W. Bush's legacy, I think, will end up being radically improved because he was the first president to want to study pandemics because he happened to read a book. <laughs> fair about, point, fair point, yes. About the, eight, the 1918 pandemic, and he called for a task force and a plan for pandemics. He will now be seen as a visionary president in a way. And part of that was his own experience on HIV and AIDS, which came out of two things, one of which was his own father's legacy and his mother's legacy. So Barbara Bush, the first lady of the first President Bush, part of her legacy was holding an AIDS baby at a time when people were really careful about wanting to stay away from people who had AIDS. That had a profound impact on George W. Bush and got him very involved in HIV AIDS in Africa. And that made him think about pandemic preparedness. 
legacies are, you know, it's again, it's transforming history to think about current challenges and reflecting on. I'll, I'll go to Jefferson in that regard and Jefferson's legacy. I've been in conversation with a couple scholars, including a guy named Ted Widmer, who wrote a great book. Janet, this is also your fault. Ted Widmer wrote a great book about Lincoln's train ride from Springfield, Illinois to Washington, DC to be inaugurated in 1861. And reflecting on the conversation that we had in 2019 about an insurrection during a transition, I was laser focused on this book in the last year. I would not have, I might have passed by it, but because we had had that conversation last summer, I got focused on this book. And in this book, Ted focuses on how during that transition train ride, Lincoln himself became obsessed with Jefferson and with the Declaration of Independence and the opening phrases that all men are created equal as what should be and would be the unifying theme for the country moving forward. It was based on those speeches that he ended up writing the Gettysburg Address, which focused on the Declaration as the creedal moment in America and the thing that should unite us as a country after the Civil War. So for Ted Widmer, and to some degree for me, the Declaration as Jefferson's legacy shouldn't be lost because the one thing that Lincoln and Frederick Douglass shared was a reverence for Jefferson that didn't exist in the South during the Civil War. During the South, they wanted to disown Jefferson and they wanted to disown the Declaration and they wanted to seize the Constitution because the Constitution allowed slavery the three-fifths clause of slavery was embedded in the Constitution in a way that it wasn't embedded in the Declaration. So legacies are constantly be re being rewritten. That, this is not to expunge or excuse Jefferson's being a slave owner or not freeing all of his slaves. Um, but it is to say that legacies are ever evolving. And I think that we can embrace parts of people's legacy without ignoring uh, parts of their legacies as well. So in progress legacies, I think is uh, is my uh, takeaway from that conversation. <laughs> Still in progress. Yeah. I will um, get back to uh, President Reagan's legacy, and we're we're close to closing out. But I do want to um, ask one question before we we jump to sort of our our closing Reagan questions here, because you know the work that both of our institutions are are engaged in is the premise of um, civil discourse, and this is not just what seems to be, but you know there is is actual evidence that it's increasingly divisive time period. And um, civil discourse can often feel unattainable um, in, in some circumstances and with particular issues. And as we're learning more about the science of, you know, how our beliefs are rooted and how fact is shared facts is even an extremely audacious goal for many of our issue areas. So I'm just curious how you and the Miller Center walk this incredibly thin tightrope of examining modern presidents and presidencies and how do you navigate and deem what is political versus what is um, useful for the historical record? And please give us some guidance, all of us out there who are trying to work for a better uh, civic and American fabric. Well, um, let me just say that for me, 
civil discourse, engaging in issues of the past and complicated issues. Um, it starts with a very basic premise that, uh, so I'm, I'm Greek American and my mom uh, beat the Greek into me. Uh, and Aristotle has always been a touch point for me in his definition of a citizen. A citizen is, citizen is someone who rules and is ruled in turn. That means that, that there has to be a, an understanding of reciprocity and of respect that there are moments where you get to rule and there are moments where you have to understand and respect that others have a voice and they get to be in charge too. And for me, that's essential. And that's what guides, uh, and it, it's one of the reasons that I love being at a university and getting to deal with, with students and, and uh, citizen leaders because they're learning that role reversal that is essential to citizenship. Uh, and I think that it's um, it's much easier to have a conversation with someone that is civil when you understand that you might be in charge and at some point they might be in charge. And therefore you have to treat them in the way that you want them to treat you. Um, it's a, it, it, That thread runs through Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative, only give a rule to others that you yourself would be willing to obey. Um, through some of the great writers in liberalism like John Rawls, um, his original position is more or less a version of the same thing. Uh, and, and I think it's the essence of what democracy should be. It's not just that the majority rules, but you understand that at some point you might be in the minority. So I'm going to quickly just go back to legacy, just because we spoke a little bit about um, sort of your changing perceptions of President's like uh, President Reagan's legacy over time, and I'd love for you to maybe reflect on a few sort of historical um, happenings that may may have shifted the legacy and where you see the in progress legacy of President Reagan at this current juncture. Well, um, let me just say I want to get the the Faulkner quote right because I got it mm -hmm. wrong before. I think the, the, the past is never past. I believe the past is yeah. never dead. It's oh, okay. not even past. That's, That's the right. quote, and it's a great quote, and I just uh, I felt bad that I didn't get it right before, and I think it speaks to this, right? So my favorite legacy of Ronald Reagan um, is the early end of the Cold War mm -hmm. um, and his deep belief in human freedom and in the American democratic experiment as truly exceptional, and, and I believe that. Um, for all of its flaws, I believe that to be true um, about American democracy, that it continues to push toward justice. Um, and I think Reagan saw that and he embraced that. It's, uh, he saw that early in his career um, in Hollywood as a governor and then as president. Um, and my, my favorite part about uh, my favorite Reagan moment is not the Berlin Wall speech. Um, it's not any of his great um, uh, inaugural addresses. It was the speech that he gave um, back in England in parliament, um, the famous Westminster speech where he spoke about freedom and the importance of freedom. It was a Cold War speech. 
he talked about um, legitimate disagreements uh, about the role of government, legitimate disagreements uh, about what forms democracy might take, but the essential human nature um, and the human desire for freedom. Um, I, I love that it paralleled another Westminster speech. He, he made several references to Winston Churchill in that speech. Winston Churchill had given his famous Iron Curtain speech in the United States in, uh, at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. I had a friend who went there. Um, and, uh, and there was a parallelism there that he would give a, a speech at Westminster um, Hall where uh, British Parliament meets. And for me, it was the essence of Reagan. He was optimistic. He was courteous. He gave a speech about democracy to the country that we rebelled from. But he um, graciously talked about our common democratic roots. A and that was classic Reagan. And, and that's what I think, for me, is the essence of, of Ronald Reagan and his legacy um, for American generations in the future. Well, we normally would end with what is your favorite Reagan speech, but I think you've covered what it is. I, I think uh, here, here's a classic case of history changing the importance because at the time it was remembered for its more bellicose language about how the Soviet Union would collapse. And now, um, you know, a multitude of years later, we think of uh, democracy as not a fragile flower and yet still, but yet still needs to be cultivated. So what elements stand out really do reflect uh, the current uh, moment that we are living through. So Dr. Villantholis, thank you so much for your time. I could do this for hours and hours on end, but we've been told that podcasts generally should stay within the hour limit. So we're just following the Zoom norms here. And I really truly look forward to other ways to intersect our work in the upcoming brighter days ahead. Well, Janet, thank you so much for the work that you all do. And it's, it's an honor to be featured and uh, to get to work with the Reagan Institute. So thanks to you and your whole team.